James chapter 1, verse number 2 tells us that we're going to face trials of many kinds. And that is so true. As long as we're alive, we're going to have problems from time to time. And those problems are going to range from mere inconveniences like a pimple popping up on your nose on the day that your school is taking pictures to overwhelming tragedies such as a sudden death in the family. And for some reason, when problems come, we always want to know why. Why did this happen? Of all days to get a pimple, why did it have to pop up on the day we're taking school pictures? And the bigger the problem, the more we want to know why. It's just human nature. But the reason it's human nature is because God created us to be rational creatures. And as rational creatures, we want our world to make sense. We want a logical explanation for why this event has occurred. And if we can't figure it out, then it throws us for a loop. And that's why you see people in the middle of a crisis continually asking the very same thing over and over again. Why did this happen? I just don't understand it. Why? And then someone new walks up, and so they start all over again. Why did this happen? I just don't understand it. Why? Now, in Christ's day, the Pharisees thought that they had figured out the answer. They thought that they had figured out why bad things happen to good people. Would you like to know the answer they came up with? Well, the Pharisees believed that if something bad happened in your life, it was because you had sinned. So if something bad happened to someone good, that person wasn't really good. They only appeared good when in fact they were secretly sinful. And they were being judged for their sin by the calamity that had transpired. And you still have people today who think that way. I'll be honest with you, the majority of Christians today think that way. If a crisis occurs in your life, it's because you've sinned. If you get a pimple on the day that your school is taking pictures, it's because you're vain. Ha! Serves you right. If you get hit by a drunk driver and you're taken to the hospital, you must have done something to deserve that. Because bad things don't just happen. Something must have caused it. And that was the predominant belief in Christ's day. In fact, almost every Jew believed that way because every synagogue was teaching that. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John, chapter 9. I want to read the first four verses of that chapter. It says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Now, did you catch that? Jesus said, neither had sinned. In other words, didn't, this didn't happen because one of them had sinned. Now, I know what most of you were thinking. You're thinking, oh, this man was born blind, so God could be glorified through Jesus healing him. And that's the traditional interpretation of this passage of Scripture. In fact, a lot of pastors will point to the Scripture and say, sometimes God causes bad things to happen in order for good to come out of it. How many of you ever heard a pastor make that comment? Well, you're lying. Just about every pastor at one time has made a comment like that if they're a Calvinist. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not right. That is not what this passage of Scripture is saying, and I'm going to prove it to you this morning. First of all, God cannot do evil because it's contrary to his very nature. 
Turn with me, if you would, to the book of James chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Now, let me set the background for you, if you don't mind. I told you that James chapter 1, verse number 2, talks about the fact that we're going to experience problems. We're going to experience various different types of trials. So the whole first chapter in the book of James is all about trials, all about problems. And so what happens is that we get this idea that God is causing this, and James wants to make sure that we know that's not the case. So notice what he writes in verses 16 and 17 of James chapter 1. Don't be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, what James is saying is, God is not good one moment, and sinful the next. God does not vacillate between the two. God is always good, and the emphasis is on always. You know, we used to say something all the time here, and you guys knew how to respond. But respond, I would say God is good, and the congregation would respond, yes, God is good, so don't be deceived. Secondly, the belief that God causes bad things to happen so good can come out of it contradicts what other scriptures teach. I want you to think about it. If God had caused this man to be born blind so he could heal him, then it teaches us that the end justifies the means. In other words, it's okay to do evil that good may come, and God is our example. But according to the scriptures, it's wrong to do evil even if good is going to come out of it. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. I want you to see what Paul's theology was. It says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. If I tell a lie in order to lead someone to Jesus, that lie is still considered a sin. It doesn't matter how much good comes out of it, it's still a lie. So according to Romans chapter 3, verse number 8, the end does not justify the means. So if God causes bad things to happen in order for good to come out of it, then he's violating his own teaching. He's violating Romans chapter 3, verse number 8. Can all of you see that? Yes. Good. You're very bright students. So God wouldn't do that. So, if God does not cause bad things to happen in order for good to come out of it, why did Jesus say that he did? He didn't. We've mistranslated this passage of Scripture. If you translate it right, it means something totally different. You see, originally, the Greek text had no punctuation except for question marks. Neither was it divided into verses or even chapters. Translators added punctuation much, much later, and chapters and verses weren't added until years after that. In fact, Stephen Langston, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is, one, is the person who divided the New Testament into chapters in 1228. Did you catch the date? 1228. The entire Bible was finished by 100 A.D. So 1128 years later, 
A man comes along and he divides the New Testament into chapters. Robert Stevens, who was a parish printer, divided the New Testament into verses in 1551. And people, he wasn't even a theologian. He was a printer. In 1555, he printed the first Bible that had chapters and verses in it. So my point is this. Punctuation and the division of the Bible into chapters and verses are not inspired. They were created by man and they're subjective. So let me show you how this should have been punctuated and how it should have been divided into verses and how it changes the meaning entirely. Look at verses 3 and 4 again of of John chapter 9. Notice what it says. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sand nor his parents, and then there's a colon, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Now the first thing I want you to do, and hopefully you're going to do this in your Bible, is I want you to mark out that colon, and I want you to put a period in its place. You see, a colon introduces an explanatory clause. So with a colon, the implication is that Jesus is explaining why this man was born blind. In other words, the disciples asked the question, and Jesus was going to explain the answer. But Jesus was doing no such thing. What Jesus was doing was correcting the notion that the man had sinned, or his parents had sinned, period. And he didn't even try to explain why the man was born blind. And by not addressing why the man was born blind, he was trying to make a point. And what is that point? The point is this. It's useless to debate the cause. The fact is the man was born blind. And speculating as to why he was born blind is stupid. It's non-productive. The disciples shouldn't have been concerned about why this man had been born blind. They should have been concerned about what they could do about it. You see, it's human nature to debate the cause and not do anything about the effect. Let me say that again because it's so true. It's human nature to debate the cause and not do anything about the effect. Why did Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans? Was it because of their sinful lifestyle? Was it because of their sinful history? People listen to me. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the majority of people lost their homes. What matters is that the majority of people lost everything they owned in that calamity. And if you have the right heart, it wouldn't matter to you why it happened. You'd be asking, what am I going to do about it? And that was the point that Jesus was trying to make. Now, right after the period, in the middle of verse 3, we took out the colon, we added a period. A new verse should have started. That's where verse 4 should have started. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking, I'm not sure about this. You could be changing what the Bible really says to fit your personal theology, Pastor Allen. Well, let me just tell you what I think. And let me just show you what the facts say. Because the facts support what I'm saying. Look back at verse number 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Now, I want you to underline the word I in verse number 4. The word I is translated from the Greek word hamos, and hamos is plural, which means it should have been translated we instead of I. So if you have your Bible there, just cross out the word I and put in we. You can go and you can verify this in just about any place, people. This is just basic Greek grammar. 
But more importantly, Hamos is written in the, in the accusative case. Now let me give you just a little Greek grammar lesson here if you don't mind. The accusative case means that it's the object of the sentence, not the subject. And there is no object in verse number 3. So any good Greek scholar will tell you that verse 4 is grammatically linked to the last part of verse number 3. In other words, the last part of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4 were meant to go together. Any second-year Greek student can verify that. It's not rocket science. It's basic grammar. So notice what this verse is really saying. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Period. Stop. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Period. Now a new thought begins. So verse 4 should start right here. And if you don't mind marking up your Bible, what I want you to do is mark out that little four there. And then in the middle of verse number three, after the period, I want you to write a four there. Because that is exactly where verse four is supposed to start. So Jesus did not say that God had made this man blind so he could be glorified by Jesus healing him. Jesus said, let's quit talking about why he's blind and let's do something about it. Let's manifest the works of God in this man's life. People, afflictions are the result of living in a sinful world that has been cursed by sin. In fact, let me just kind of read this and put the voice inflections where it should be if you have the punctuation and the verses right. Here's how it should read. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, period. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, we must work the works of him that sent us. In other words, he's saying, quit debating this, disciples. But for us to manifest the works of God in this man's life, we've got to do something about it. Quit asking why. Let's do something about this. And that's what Jesus was trying to do. People, God's heart is to fix the problems, not create the problems. Now, this series is on stress. And if you noticed in this series, I'm not talking about the little things that stress us out. I'm talking about the big things that stress us out. In the very first uh, sermon in the series, we talked about alleviating stress through prayer, giving things to God, and how to train yourself to do that by getting yourself a God box. And instead of holding on, to the crisis that you're in, the cause of the stress. You pray about it, you give it to God. And every time you want to take it back, you got to go to the God box, you got to pick it up. So we talked about that. Then we talked about our lifestyle being so stressful that the reason it's stressful is because we have no margin in it. And I told you that in order to alleviate stress, we have to follow God's word and we have to create margin in our life. But now I want to talk about how to alleviate stress when major crisis comes inside your life. I want to show you how this relates to stress. Because there's a lesson in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, that relates to stress. Whenever a crisis occurs, it produces stress. As an example, if you get laid off at work, that's going to naturally produce stress. If your house catches on fire and it burns down, it's going to produce stress. If your 16-year-old child gets arrested, maybe for a DUI or for something else, it's going to produce stress. People, it's just a fact of life. When a crisis comes, it produces stress. 
But if we're not careful, we get caught up in playing the why game. Why did this happen? Why did it have to happen right before Christmas? Why didn't we save more money? Why did God allow this to happen? Why, why, why? Now listen to me. Playing the why game can be very dangerous. The danger is that it sucks us into the emotional aspect of the crisis and we develop what I call tunnel vision. All we can see is the problem and the immediate consequences of the problem, which makes us even more stressed. So what can we learn from Jesus in the incident with the blind man? Well, first of all, what Jesus taught us is that obsessing over why something has happened is useless. It's not going to help the situation. It's not going to change what has happened. So if you want to ask why when a crisis first occurs, go ahead. That's okay. But if you can't get over the why stage... If you're continually a month down the road or two months down the road continually saying why, it's a problem. Because what that means is you have tunnel vision. You can't see anything else but the problem and the immediate consequences of the problem. And you're stuck in the emotional aspect of the crisis. So you've got to get past this why stage. Secondly... Jesus taught us to take a step back and to look at the big picture. You see, the disciples got caught up in wanting to know why this had happened. But Jesus said, that's not important. That's not productive. Because that's not going to change the situation. You need to see this in the light of the big picture. And the big picture is this. I'm the Messiah. God has sent me to do the works of him. And that the works of him might be manifested in people. That's the big picture. So quit debating why this man was born blind and let's get this man healed. And people, that's a great lesson for us whenever a crisis occurs. When something bad happens, we need to stop trying to figure out why it happened. And start looking at the crisis in light of the big picture. You'll be surprised at how much it changes your perspective. The crisis that looks so big at the moment is really quite small when you look at it in light of the big picture. Now, I understand that sometimes I'll teach something and I'll teach a principle and people go, well, that's great, but how do I apply it? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of examples to illustrate how to apply what Jesus taught us about a crisis. All right? So I'm going to give you some examples how to look at a crisis in light of the big picture. Let's suppose that you lose your job. Let's be honest. They want to say unemployment's at 10.4%. That's not true, people. It's almost 17%. And the reason why is because the figures that they're giving you only has to deal with those who are unemployment. Those who were laid off in the beginning, unemployment has run out. There's many, of, uh, many people who's not continuing looking for a job. So those are not put in those numbers. Unemployment is around 17%. 16.7 if you want to get exact. But let's suppose that you're one of those 16.7% of the people who've lost their job. You hate being part of the number, but that's you. Now, it's okay to go through the why stage for a little bit. Why did this happen to me? Why did this have to happen right before Christmas? But eventually, you need to stop asking why, and you need to take a step back and look at things in light of the big picture. Yes, you might have to sell your house. Yes, you might even lose your house. But people, you still got your family. And you still live in the greatest country in the world. And in America, we don't have poor people. We have 
less fortunate people. Now, some of you might say, that's quite hard, Alan, to say that. No, I learned a valuable lesson going over to Egypt and Jordan. I'm telling you, that changed my perspective. I have never been poor. Lisa and I have been less fortunate. There was a time when God called me into the ministry, and I gave up a job, sold two businesses, gave that money away, and I went full-time in the ministry. My salary was $300 a week, which is supposed to be $15,600 a year, but many times that money did not come in. So I probably lived on less than $12,000 a year. Lisa stayed home with our children. Our grocery budget was $20 a week. Now, if you'd have asked me back then, are you poor? I would have said, yes, I am poor. But you know, we were happy. And all of our needs were met. I lived in a nice home. It was a very small home, less than 1,200 square feet. But it was a nice home. And I thought I was poor until I went over to Egypt. We got into the Sinai Peninsula, and I found out what poor really is, people. We don't have poor in America. We have less fortunate. When I saw my condition in the light of the big picture, I wasn't as poor as I thought I was. Now, if you find yourself in that position, it's true. You might lose your house. You might lose your home. But you still got your family, and you still live in the greatest country in the world. And you're not going to have nowhere to stay. Burger King is hiring. And you both might have to work, you and your husband or you and your wife. But if you both work, you can move into a nice, clean apartment. And you know what? That little apartment that you're griping about, it's twice as nice as what my grandma and grandpa lived in for their entire life. And it's probably twice as nice as what your grandma and your grandpa lived in for their entire life. The problem with America is we want to compare ourselves to everyone else. But you know what? When you begin to see your situation in light of the big picture, and you realize you're not going to starve, you're not going to be thrown out in the cold, and you start looking at it in light of the big picture, all of a sudden it's, yes, this is a setback, but you know what? We're going to make it. With that type of attitude, God can bless you. With that type of attitude, God will start opening things up. The Word of God says, David was writing this, that he'd never seen the righteous begging bread. Why? Because God takes care of his children. Now let's suppose that your house burns down. You can play the why game. Why did this happen? We lost everything we owned. Or you can react like Billy Joe Doherty did when his house burned down. When they got out of the house safely, they were standing in the street. The firemen were there, but it was too far gone. They actually told them all we're going to do is contain it, but basically all we can do is just let it burn to the ground with all of his possessions. So he called his kids and his whole family over there, and he wrapped his arms around them. They all had their arms linked together. And this is what Billy Joe told them. He said, kids, take a good look. That's the way life is. One day, everything you own on this earth is going to be completely gone. It's going to disappear. But what we do for God will last for all eternity. Let this be a lesson to you kids. Now you need to understand something. Billy Joe saw the crisis in light of the big picture. And there's something about that that alleviates the stress. There's something about that that says, you know what? I'm sitting here and I've been sucked into the emotional aspect of this and all I can see is the problem and all I can see is the immediate consequences of the problem. But you know, when I take a step back, this might be a setback, but this is only temporary. My God is a good God. 
And he's going to help me to overcome in this situation. And when we start seeing things in the light of the big picture, all of a sudden, that big crisis seems a lot smaller. And we realize that our God is a big God. Listen to me. You cannot stop bad things from happening. We live in a sinful world. And this sinful world is cursed because of that sin. But if you look at the, those things that happen in light of the big picture, they won't seem as bad. And believe it or not, seeing things in light of the big picture can alleviate a lot of stress. But if you don't learn how to do what I'm talking about, it can have devastating results. Two weeks ago, a medical student at OSU committed suicide. <sighs> committed suicide. And the reason he committed suicide is because he knew he was going to fail and he was going to flunk out of med school. And he got into this why game. Why me? Why would God allow me to go to medical school if he knew I couldn't do it? Why did I have these expectations? Why does it have to be so tough? And what happened is it sucked him into the emotional aspect of the crisis. And all he could see was the problem and the immediate consequences of the problem. And he thought, my parents are going to be so disappointed. It's so embarrassing. What am I going to tell people for the rest of my life? I'm going to be known as the person who failed medical school. So what he did was he killed himself. But what happened is he failed to see the crisis in light of the big picture. He got sucked into the emotional aspect of the crisis and all he could see was the problem and the immediate consequences of the problem. And what he didn't realize if he would have taken a step back is that you know what? If it's this difficult for me, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed being a doctor anyway. And I got one of the few opportunities that most people have. I got a chance to go to it and find out, you know, it's not really for me. And all he really had to tell people was, you know what? I didn't want to be a doctor. My heart wasn't, it just couldn't study and realize I have to get out. But he couldn't do that. But the reason he couldn't do that is there was no one there to help him to take a step back and look at the crisis in light of the big picture. So you're not a doctor. Who cares? So your life didn't turn out the way you wanted. Who cares? God is still God. And he can bless you. And he can give you a great life. And if this young man had known how to quit playing the why game and to step back and look at it from the big picture, he would not have committed suicide. Parents, we have a responsibility that when bad things happen to our kids, and you know when they're going through the teen years, everything is a crisis. They're in love. And he doesn't love me. Or I want to do this and I can't. Or I'm not popular. And you know what? We've got to teach our kids that it's okay to ask why for a little bit. But there comes a time when we quit playing the why game. We take a step back and we look at the crisis in light of the big picture. And we realize that life is still good. This young man could have had a great life. He could have married the woman of his dreams, had wonderful kids, and now have more direction in his life because he's not meant to do this. What do I want to do with my life? He could have lived into a ripe old age and done great things for God. But the problem is he got sucked into the emotional aspect of the crisis.
He had tunnel vision. So all he could see was the problem and the consequences of the problem. And it had devastating results. If you're going through a tough time, I want you to understand something. It's not nearly as bad as you think it is. Lisa and I have had some horrible things happen to us. And you know, I appreciate God. Because in the midst of that, when no one knew what was happening... God would say, you're going to get up there Sunday morning, you're going to preach your heart out, but God, I don't feel like it. He said, Alan, I promise you, in a little bit, this is going to be insignificant. In the light of the big picture, this is a small. It's so much smaller than what you think it is. And you know what? I continue on, and I would take a step back, and pretty soon that crisis passed, and it's like, boy, God, you were right. If you're going through a tough time, let me tell you, God is good all the time. He didn't create the bad thing. He didn't cause something bad to happen so good can come out of it. Will good come out of it? Yes. But don't mistake that God caused the bad to make the good come out of it. The devil causes the bad. And Romans 8, 28 says, For all things work for the best for the... Work for the best for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, no matter what the devil has done, God can bring good out of that. But don't mistake that he caused that. You just be prepared if you're going through a tough time that if you take a step back, God's going to show you miraculous things that can happen in your life. And good can come. Just don't get sucked in to the emotional aspect of the crisis. 